Hey everyone, I'm Mark Robison. I'm a candidate for the North Carolina State Senate representing Charlotte's District 39. I'm also your host for the Elephant in the Room podcast. And this is where we tackle issues that a lot of folks are thinking about, not a lot of folks seem to be talking about. And we're going to get into um, some details, probably the most important thing to our country right now, and that is the state of our military, the future of our military. And we're going to look back a little bit on the legacy of the war in Afghanistan to learn about where we are and where we're going. Can't imagine having a better guest than the one that I've got today. His name is Pat Harrigan. And he has become a really good friend. Jenny and I love spending time with he and his wife, Rocky. And that's really both on and off our parallel campaign trails. Um, Pat knows a thing or two about Afghanistan, given his experiences there as a Green Beret, operating with U.S. Special Forces during our longest war. Pat is a two-time recipient of the Bronze Star. And folks, he's the very definition of an American hero. And that is probably magnified by his embarrassment that I'm bragging on him right now. Um, his only noticeable flaw is obviously instead of attending the Citadel like I did, he went to West Point where he excelled and received his degree in nuclear engineering. Uh, today, he's running for the U.S. Congress in North Carolina's newest district, District 14, and that represents parts of Mecklenburg and Gaston counties. And other than being the best man for this job by far, uh, he's one of the best candidates for any office I've seen in decades. Pat, thank you so much for being here today. Mark, thanks for having me. And uh, I'll tell you, you must be doing something right because I, I won't normally do a podcast with a Citadel grad. Nice. Uh, this this is uh, a, a treat for me to be to be on here. But I do want to correct one thing. You called me a hero. I am not a hero. Uh, my men were heroes. And uh, there's a lot of lot of truly heroic things that happened in Afghanistan. And uh, I'm excited to talk to you uh, about Afghanistan today. Well, thank you. And, um, you know, I'll dive right into it, Pat. It's been, gosh, it's been a little over a year um, since the fall of Afghanistan, I guess the second fall of Afghanistan, when the Taliban retook that country in a few weeks last summer. I mean, we uh, we saw it in real time. We watched it. Um, what is your perception of the way that that conflict ended? The end of the Afghan tragedy was truly a um, unbelievably disappointing. Uh, I can tell you that I spent several days uh, fielding phone calls from folks that I served with, folks that served under me. Um, I was concerned some of them were gonna commit suicide. Uh, you have to understand there are a lot of folks that spent a lot more time in Afghanistan than I did. I only spent a little over 18 months there. Uh, I, you know, I know guys that served five, six, seven, eight, nine years of their lives there. And for all of that to end the way that it did, uh, it is simply unconscionable. And so I think the worst part about it was it, it didn't have to happen that way. Uh, Every single American soldier uh, that I know would have given their life to prevent that acts, that, that exit from happening the way that it happened, because not only did it, it put the cap, uh, a bad cap on, on 20 years worth of effort, uh, you know, blood, sweat and tax dollars, uh, but it seriously impacted 
our reputation across the globe. Right. And I mean, I would have died to prevent that from happening. Everybody else that I know that I served with uh, would have died to prevent that from happening. And, uh, you know, 13 folks did die. Yeah. To try to prevent that from happening. Absolutely. And uh, it, it just is incredibly sad that it, it happened the way that, that it happened. Well, one of the reasons it's one of the reasons I'm running. I mean, honestly, you know, I, I didn't sleep for three days uh, when when it happened. And, uh, you know, I, I said. The leaders that we have are leading us down the road to failed outcomes, and we need to get them the heck out of Washington before they start cascading those field out, those failed outcomes uh, across across the globe, uh, across all the different facets yeah. of, of our society. I mean, it seemed like a, a ready fire aim uh, strategic <laughs> withdrawal. I don't think you can word, use the word strategic in that same phrase, but um, wow. Yeah. And, and this is personal to you. You actually, I think you've mentioned to me before that you still have people there that are, that are still stuck there. I mean, that that's something the American people, you know, we, we have a short attention span and we've moved on to, to other issues. So we did leave. And um, when we did, uh, I guess a going away present that we made to the Taliban as they were marching into um, into Kabul was we left them Bagram Air Base and about $80 billion worth of military hardware. But, hey, you know, we're out. So why should we care what happens to that country now? We're gone. Well, you know, Mark, I think a, a good first challenge for these 87,000 uh, new armed IRS agents that we're hiring should actually be to send them over to Afghanistan and uh, collect that $80 billion uh, worth of uh, equipment that uh, <laughs> we paid for in taxes. Uh, maybe oh, they can start God. there before they start in on, uh, you know, ordinary Americans that have a net income of $75,000 or less. Um, that's why you need to go to Washington. <laughs> I mean, come on. Yeah. But that, you were so right. That being said, why should we care what happens in Afghanistan now? Yeah. Uh, it's the same reason why we cared about it back in 2001. And because it's because it became a safe haven for terrorism. Right. Uh, and, and OK, hey, it's a safe haven for terrorism. But but what happens? Terrorists want to export that capability. They want to export that threat outside of the borders of Afghanistan to the West. Right. Uh, and they want to harm American interests and they want to kill Americans. Yes. Uh, that's why we care. That's why we've always cared. And that threat still persists today. I think we all saw about a month ago, we, we killed Ayman al-Zawahiri, the leader of al-Qaeda, uh, someone we've been hunting for the last 20 years. Right, right. Um, as he sat on his balcony uh, in his palace in Kabul. And, you know, although that is a, a great happening. That's a, a wonderful operation, uh, good for America. I think if you kind of step back and you look at it from 30,000 feet, that guy's been in hiding for 20 years, probably moving every single night of his life, maybe every second or third night, can never stay in, in one place more than a, a, you know a, a, a couple nights. Right. Um, and now all of a sudden, we catch his pattern of life and every single morning he goes out and enjoys a cup of tea outside on the balcony uh, of his Kabul residence. Uh, how safe does he feel in today's Afghanistan? How safe do other members of Al Qaeda that we didn't kill that are still there? 
how safe do they feel? How safe do other terrorist organizations that aren't averse uh, to the governance of the Taliban, how safe do they feel there? That's the problem with Afghanistan. That's always been the problem and it will always be the problem. That is, uh, you, you mentioned the there. he felt safe. Of course he was safe. I'm, I'm very glad that he was not uh, in this instance. However, there's a whole lot of other folks on the ground there that are, uh, and it's growing. It sounds like it's be, been replanted almost. But, you know, Pat, you know, if, if you don't mind me asking, can you just tell us a little bit? I know a lot of uh, what what I, you know, what, what I'd love to hear about are things you can't talk about. But what is your personal experience on the ground there uh, in the special forces and how that shapes how you look at it? Yeah, so I, I had uh, two different experiences in Afghanistan, one from 2011 to 2012 when I was in the infantry and another in 2015 and 2016 when I was in the special forces. And as an officer, you can't go directly into the special forces. You have to have four years of experience uh, in, in uh, the, the regular army first. Uh, and so, but during my time in the infantry, I had a very special forces uh, type of mission. Uh, I was uh, in charge of a small combat outpost. I had my platoon out there, about 40 guys, but I had about, <laughs> 300 Afghans between the Afghan National Army, Afghan National Police, and some uh, you know private security expat guys oh, wow. uh, that I was in control of, and it was a, it was an amazing experience. So it was a very traditional special forces mission, and then I liked it so much that I wanted to join the special forces, and, and did, and that's actually how I came to North Carolina oh, back wow, in 2013. Okay. Uh, was was joining the special forces, going through the special forces qualification course, and ultimately graduated that course and, and took a team to Afghanistan again in 2015, 2016. And a lot of what we did there, uh, you know, I can't talk about, uh, even though the war's over, uh, yeah. it's, it's, you know, still classified. And, uh, but there's been a lot of resources, both public open source. There's been some books that have been written about it. Uh, I'm a traditionalist. I'm, I'm a quiet professional. Uh, a lot of other people talk about that stuff and I don't really like talking about it. But what I, what I will say generally is, <laughs> Afghanistan was a very political conflict. Right. And ultimately, the folks that were on the ground did not lose Afghanistan. We lost Afghanistan as a country because uh, we lost the political will to win in Afghanistan. You know, a lot of people say, you know, we did not ever have a military solution in Afghanistan. And I would say absolutely wrong. we did have a military solution in Afghanistan. The Taliban certainly had a military solution and they proved that a military solution for Afghanistan uh, works. And so, um, you know, all that being said, I, I think we just got, we got to a point in Afghanistan where President Obama, the Obama administration, Vice President Biden, uh, and his Pentagon, you know, civilian folks at the Pentagon were briefing the American people that the Afghans had built sufficient capability. They were doing all the fighting. And the only thing that Americans were doing was trained advise assist. And that was an absolute boldface lie. Right. I mean, just an absolute plain lie. And in reality, you know, we were as special forces uh, in, in the various special operational forces that were uh within the, within Afghanistan, we're holding up Afghanistan on our, on our backs every single night. Uh, 
And so where that became a real problem and where politics really got involved here was that the political narrative was so different than the reality on the ground, but the rules of engagement and the tactical directives that were being issued based off of the political narrative were so incongruent with the reality on the ground that it actually put special forces in danger and it killed people. And it, and it, it just let the generals run the show, not the politicians. It, it, it seems like a, a, a throwback to Vietnam. And I think that for the folks that are in the know, folks that were able to live the Vietnam era uh, and, and that can synthesize the similarities between Vietnam and Afghanistan, uh, the stark and sad conclusion is that, that they're very similar, if not identical. Uh, we allowed the political tail to wag the military dog, which, look, that is how our system is set up. But yes. it, it doesn't mean uh, that that you don't listen to the folks uh, that know how to do what they're going to do. And, and I'd be the first to argue that, you know, we we had some real pathways to be successful out there. It didn't look like what Afghanistan ultimately, you know, looked like in terms of their existing form of government. Right. Uh, you know, we, we created a very westernized system where Afghans really needed a system of their own. Uh, that's a that's an entirely different discussion in and of itself. Uh, that's beyond the scope of this podcast. But look, we just never took the chains off our special forces ever. And uh, we we earned a very, very political result in Afghanistan because of it. And the problem is, is that takes a huge toll on your your special operations forces, takes a big toll on your military, uh, supporting all the efforts over there. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, leaves them with a big question mark for a significant part of their lives. Yeah, it. You know, I, I would. It, it, I would even draw another parallel. Leadership is so important. I mean, I just look here in our, our you know, here in uh, Charlotte with our CMPD, and when when leadership is not supporting you, it, <laughs> you're going to have very low morale, and you're not going to have anything uh, good uh, come from the execution. So, um, let me bring us, if I could, geographically a little closer. Uh, let's let's go down to the Mexican border. Sure. And everybody knows. Um, I mean, everybody, I can't imagine some folks have their head in the sand maybe, but we've got a problem with our Southern border with Mexico. Uh, I think this uh, crazy open border policy that we've had now for a year and a half is making the Mexican drug cartels even wealthier than they already were as drugs pour into our country. And then of course the human traffickers and their victims. I mean, we're seeing that uh, here in Charlotte, sixth worst city in the United States for human trafficking. But Pat, here's a here's one that that we've got to tackle, and and somebody's going to have to talk about this elephant in the room. Are terrorists from outside the Western Hemisphere are they exploiting this gap in our border wall as well? The answer to that question is yes, uh, and that can be backed up by data. You know, one of the pillars of, of my campaign is that, you know, if we don't have a border, we don't have a country. Yeah. And that isn't a partisan talking point. Uh, it, it, it is simply based on my experience uh, rooting around the rest of the world, not just Afghanistan and understanding how the world works. If we don't have a secure border, if we're not controlling what comes across that border, what comes into our country, someday at some point in time, something really bad is going to happen. 
And the fact that nothing has happened is uh, indicative of the incredible role that special operations forces and our various agencies across our governmental governmental apparatus, um, you know, the powers they have and the things that they do to keep us safe. Uh, but it can't stop all of it. And when you don't know what's coming across the border, you actually can't even assess the threat. Uh, but I'll, I'm kind of going off of memory here. Uh, and I'm going to actually try to pull something up that I that I saved from a couple of years ago. That's interesting. But, you know, as far as our border is concerned, uh, we have special interest aliens. We have special interest countries. We have known and suspected terrorists. Right. That's SICs, SIAs, KSTs. Uh, that might still be the monikers that, that are used today. Right. Uh, but basically, those are like countries that were super concerned that if anybody did cross the border, we really want to know about those people. The aliens themselves, obviously, we want to apprehend and, and, and know exactly who those are. And then certainly known and suspected terrorists, uh, you know, a, a big deal. I just was kind of looking around uh and it, it looks like just in May, I was able to pull data. And, and I will tell you, it's, it, to me, it seems like it has been, become more difficult to pull data. Uh, we should be able to very easily see how many people are coming across our border from Iran, how many people are coming across our border from China, how many people are coming across our border from Russia um, or, or, or various countries that have interests uh, severely averse to ours. And you you can't really find that data. But what I did find, just a, a quick little search on May, is that we did apprehend 239,000 migrants at our southern border. And 15 of those were on the terrorist watch list. Oh my. And that's out of the ones that we apprehended. And, you know, I just want to read, I did pull this thing up here. I was able to find it on my computer. And so sorry, I was dr- droning a little bit because I was looking for this. But I... This is from the Department of Homeland Security's website. I don't know that you could still find this today, but I saved it because I just thought it was very interesting back in the day. But I'm just going to read it because I I can't do it justice, and, and and maybe the listeners will 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 glean some some nuggets out of this. But and again, this is directly from Department of Homeland Security's website back in 2019. There are thousands of individuals on the terrorist watch list that traveled through our hemisphere last year alone, and we work very hard to keep these individuals from traveling on illicit pathways to our country. We work with foreign partners to block many of these individuals and prevent them from entering the United States. But effective border security is our last line of defense. The threat is real. The number of terror watch listed individuals encountered at our southern border has increased over the last two years. The exact number is sensitive and details about these cases are extremely sensitive, i.e. we're not going to tell you exactly how many. Right. Right. But I'm sure all Americans would agree that even one terrorist reaching our borders is one too many. Overall, we stop on average 10 individuals on the terrorist watch list per day from traveling to or entering the United States, more than 3,700 in fiscal year 2017. Additionally, last year at our southern border, DHS encountered more than 3,000 special interest aliens, those SIAs I was talking about. Yep. Individuals with suspicious travel patterns who may pose a national security risk. Oh my goodness. That's sobering, right? That's a, a, that is a very real understanding of the threat that we have at our Southern border. And and look, this is where I think Republicans have kind of gone awry. I think we've developed a, a reputation for not liking immigration. 
No, I, I am super pro immigration. I mean, we need right. ample immigrants in this country to overcome the labor shortages that we have, the structural inconsistencies that we have within our economy. And, and more so than anything else, look, like I'm a huge fan of, of immigration because I like the opportunity to drain the brain trusts of our strategic adversaries across the world. <laughs> I That's want those people here working for us, not yeah. working for our adversaries working against us. <laughs> Brilliant. So Brilliant. in a lot of ways, we need to make legal immigration much, much easier, a much simpler, a much more streamlined process than it is today. Because if you talk to any business owner that's trying to get labor from overseas, it is such a pain. And we have the security apparatus to be able to streamline that, I believe, at this point in time um, within our society, within the technological base that we possess. And so what we have to do, though, is we have to stop folks from coming in whose interests are averse to ours. Right. Who We don't know who's coming in. Right. That's why we need a wall. And that's why we've got to have nice big doors to that wall. That is real. That's true. Yeah, um, but but if we don't. At some point in time, you have to understand that these large, capable, very well funded nation states uh, that hate us yes. as Americans will figure out a way to exploit our borders and exploit the weakness uh, that that America has to the south, and, and and it will absolutely come and bite us in the butt. This is probably the biggest weakness that we have, and I think that is the elephant in the room. Is that uh, that border? I guess porous border is uh, the number one spot for terrorists can come across, and nobody's talking about that. Pat, we're going to send you to Washington. You've got to represent this district. You need to represent. Uh, in in Congress, and we are going to see um, a flip to a, a majority, and I'm very excited about that. So let me ask you this: I'm going to send this on a very positive, optimistic note, and let's just say, you know, if you had a magic wand, how would you fix America's foreign policy? And you know, especially as it concerns to these future terrorist assaults. I mean, if we're looking at um, coming from Al Qaeda or anyone really, uh, you mentioned it any other country that's filled with people who hate us. What's your magic wand moment there? It's getting everyone on the same page to believe the following. When America fails to lead, the world burns. That is my personal political philosophy uh, as it relates to foreign policy. Uh, and that's just based on my experience. Right. When America fails to lead, the world burns. And you saw that in, you've, you've seen that play out in Afghanistan. We failed to provide adequate leadership. Uh, and not only did it hurt us, it hurt the future of all Afghans, certainly hurt our reputation, directly led to the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. Yep, of course. Strategic, per perceived strategic weakness Perception. on the of the United States, right? Uh, all the saber, saber rattling that exists uh, between Taiwan and China mm -hmm. is, a, is a direct reflection of a failure of leadership. Uh, and, and, and those threats 
people don't understand, you know, I used to, I used to tell folks um, in the military, right. You know, one of the things that, that I was in charge of in, in my time in special forces was securing the area around Bagram. Uh, and, you know, we were on a very, very tight leash on whether we were allowed to do operations, not allowed to do operations. And, and, and one of the kind of strategic principles that I, I really had to hammer home with, with generals was, look, you know, we can conduct operations in such a way that, uh, you know, we're trying to reduce the risk to our troops. Uh, we're trying to run less missions. We're trying to run only very specific missions. But you can go too far down that road and ultimately by not running missions, you actually make it more dangerous than if you're running missions and running operations. Wow. And the, the same thing applies with our concept of, of foreign policy. And if we're not involved overseas, things become much, much more dangerous for us uh, as Americans individually, mm-hmm. corporately. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, we, we lose access to being able to uh, push forward, you know, our, our strategic initiatives um, and and what we want to see happen across the globe. And so I don't think enough people recognize that. I think we, I I think we've got some, some issue with America first policy, right? Like America first is very important, uh, but a strong, robust foreign policy is also very America first. Right. Um, so I think as a party, we need to get a better grasp of that, come together and, and understand that, uh, look, we have to take a very, very active role in the world or we will not like the world that our kids get to grow up in. That's the truth. And you, you put it very well. I mean, we are an exceptional nation. We are beyond exceptional. And well, and, and look, right, the concept of American and sorry to cut you off, Mark, but like the concept of American American exceptionalism. <clears throat> overseas, pick a pick a nasty country, right, that we could choose to be involved with or we could choose to not be involved with. Well, if we choose to be involved with it, like it or not, whether they like it or not, we have an American influence there. If we choose to not be involved Who's going to fill that void? Is it going to be China? Is it going to be Russia? Is it going to be Iran? Is it going to be another regional nation state that uh, doesn't like us? Isn't wired like us? Like the one thing that America does and and as, and as much as I think we failed to do this well over the last 20 years and as much as foreign countries love to hate us, yeah. They love us because at the end of the day, we are exceptional and we do things for other people that other countries aren't willing to do. Right. We step up, we volunteer, we help, and we get something out of it for sure, but they do too. And their lives are better. And so, you know, we like, we're sometimes the country that loves to be hated. Um, but we are the world's foremost cause for good. Yeah. And if not us, then who will it be? It's not going to be good. I can promise you that. Amen to that. This, this has been a really deep, uh, I mean, this is an incredibly important and intriguing conversation. Pat, I can't thank you enough uh, for being on today. Thank you so much for being here. Hey, I'm very glad to have uh, been asked uh, to, to come here with you today, Mark. And uh, hopefully, 
nobody that's listening to this is asleep and uh, you at least enjoyed it a little bit, but thanks for the opportunity. Amen to that. So folks, until next time, have a great day and always be on the lookout for the elephant in the room.